Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the, uh, you know, the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out, and I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Edward Slingerland. He has a new book called Drunk, How We Slipped, Danced, and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization. He goes by Ted. So, Ted, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, tell me about uh, a little bit about your background and you know how you came to author books, and then I want to talk about this new book that you have. Well, I'm a professor of early Chinese philosophy is my main specialty in comparative religion. So um, my early academic work focused on early Taoism and Confucianism, and then I got into doing more cognitive science and humanities, cognitive science of religion, and just started branching out more and more into the sciences. So, so actually, I'm now in a philosophy department, but I'm also adjunct in psychology and hang out mainly with psychologists these days. So I've had a kind of strange career path. But yeah, I, I wrote my first trade book came out in 2014. Uh, it's called Trying Not to Try. 
about this early Chinese ideal of effortless action or Wu Wei. It's kind of like being in the zone in sports where you relax, you're completely unselfconscious, but everything works out perfectly and people trust you and like you and everything happens the way it should. And it's about this tension involved in that that ideal. So hence the title, trying not to try. How can you how can you try not to try? I'd explain why it's a paradox and then walk people through the various ways that early these early Chinese thinkers tried to get around the paradox. Well what why did um if we can just delve into it for a moment, why did they propose this paradox and how is the concept useful now that you've studied it and written a book on it? Well, they had they didn't so much propose the paradoxes, just get stuck in it, right? So they have as their ideal. It's an alternative ideal. One of the things I point out, it's an alternative ideal to, let's say, recent West Western philosophy. So, and I, I think in general in Western culture, we have this kind of idea that any goal worth achieving is something that you have to work really hard for and strive and keep trying and try and try and try and you'll eventually get it. And if you're not successful, you should just try harder. And um, that's sometimes true, but it's sometimes not. So there are important, I, I argue in the book, there actually, the, they were, the early Chinese were right about this, that there are some important goals like happiness or trust or love that you, you can't achieve or creativity, creative insights that you can't achieve through just kind of uh, forcing your way from A to B. You've got to relax and let it happen. But there's, you know, it's hard to relax. If you, if you know that you need to relax and you're trying to relax, it's actually completely counterproductive. So they, they get involved in this tension just because they happen to have spontaneity as an ideal. And, but I'm arguing in the book that it actually is a helpful concept for us because I think once it's pointed out to people that there are a lot of goals that you need to actually be relaxed to do, to do well for, they, they see the point. They realize that you're right. But we, because we don't have a word for this state, and because we tend to emphasize more striving and trying, I think it's, it's a kind of blind spot for us. And so that's one way in which these early Chinese thinkers can be helpful. Yeah, I've seen a lot of examples of this. Like I remember um, uh, Caesar, Caesar Milan, he was like the dog whisperer, and he would always tell people, you got to be calm and assertive, you know, so they, mm-hmm. would, they would have to take control, but not be frenzied or angry about it. Yep. And then yeah. I've seen it in, in other examples, too, about, you know, going to sleep. You can't say, go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep. Yeah, you know, or, that's, that's the example you know, I use a lot, yeah. Well, remember the movie, Kung Fu, I think it was Kung Fu Panda 2, where he goes, inner peace, <laughs> inner peace, inner peace. Yeah. I thought that was hilarious, you know, you should yeah. force inner peace into himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so. there's, a, there's a very funny Onion article about that for this kind of this guru contest where they're trying to um, out meditate each other. And the guy who wins starts pumping his fist and he says, I am the most serene. I am the most serene. <laughs> it's kind of, um, you know, it's, it points out this kind of um, tension between being goal directed and trying and the state where to be really in it, you have to kind of let go of the goal at some level. Mm, okay. Well, how did the concept for the book drunk come about? Were you drinking one night and it came up or had it come to you? <laughs> it's, it's actually, so my, my colleagues were a bit baffled by the topic, but it actually grows organically out of my previous work. So one connection is this, this first tension, it's this try not to try tension. The reason that it's a paradox is that, let's say you're trying to fall asleep, you have insomnia and you say, go to sleep, go to sleep. The, the part of your brain you're activating 
is actually the part you need to you need to shut down in order to fall asleep. So you're activating the very thing you want to downregulate. And so that's why it's actually directly a paradox that's it's just built into the structure of the brain, essentially. So the, these early Chinese thinkers come up with various indirect ways around this tension. So sit like this, you know, sit in meditation a certain way, or do breathing exercises, or do this ritual. They have various kind of ways to trick you in a way out of thinking about the tension. But it occurred to me at one point, one of these early texts uses drunkenness as an analogy of the spiritual state they want you to get into. And it started to occur to me that, hmm, maybe, you know, drunkenness is actually a, a form of this state. And, you know, maybe chemical intoxicants in general, but really alcohol in particular, are a cultural technology that cultures have devised to get around this paradox. Because if you're, you're trying to use your brain to shut down your brain, that's a paradox. If you can just sip something and it will go inside and turn down your prefrontal cortex, that's a way around the tension. And so one of the main functions of alcohol is to essentially relax you, to, to downregulate your executive function. And the prefrontal cortex uh, is the main site of that in the brain. So it's kind of a, a you know, some people would view it as a cheat, but um, it's actually kind of clever workaround. <laughs> it's a way to use this external substance to induce psychological state that's very difficult to induce directly by yourself. Well, it's, it's you know, I, I think it's akin to like using CBD or drinking coffee to get yourself, you know, creative, your creative juices flowing or, you know, smoking weed. I know, yeah. I'm sure if you get too much of any of these, then... It debilitates you. You can't function, but maybe a little bit, perhaps using the right way would help you. Yeah, those are those are very different substances, though. Cannabis has some of the is in the same class. So, so the drunk is primarily about intoxicants. So that would include um, alcohol and cannabis. So substances that downregulate your prefrontal cortex, uh, depress certain parts of your brain, release some positive hormones. Whereas something like caffeine is, in a way, the, the enemy of alcohol. <laughs> it's, it's actually strengthening your PFC. So stimulants are a very different type of drug. And we tend to use those not so much to get the creative juices flowing. They tend not to work very well for that. What they work well for is getting you working on something, so getting you sitting in front of the computer and focusing. They're good. So stimulants are good for tasks where it's a very clear ABC progress where you just need to put in the time um, and put in the effort to do it. And stimulants help you to do that. Where intoxicants like cannabis and alcohol come in handy. And again, you know, as you said, in the right doses. And so, you know, I'm talking drunk about some of the experimental work on this. And it looks like about to capture most of the benefits of intoxication with alcohol about, uh, you want to get to about 0.08 blood alcohol content. So that's like maybe two beers, depending on how big you are and if you've eaten or not. So just about when you shouldn't be operating heavy, heavy machinery is when you start to get these positive effects like enhanced creativity. And, and so alcohol and other intoxicants are useful in situations where going from A to B to C isn't what you need to do. You need to think of Z. You need to think of this completely different thing that's so psychologists call this lateral thinking. So you're trying to, to, to think of something completely different or make a connection between things that's unusual. Caffeine's not helpful. Nicotine's not helpful for something like that. You really need something that relaxes the hold 
of your prefrontal cortex so that your brain, essentially your brain relaxes and different regions start talking to each other when they feel like it. And there's no, there's no um, playground monitor strictly in charge anymore. So is the book about historical examples of this or is it a guidebook on how you know one could use alcohol for the creative process or what's the focus of it? So the, the, there's a couple purposes of the book. The first is to just uh, debunk the standard scientific story about why we, we have a taste for intoxicants. So the, the standard story is that we, we like we take alcohol as an example. We like to drink alcohol because ethanol, you know, the alcohol molecule, happens to trigger a reward network in our brain. And so there's no good reason for it. It's just we figured out a trick where we get a reward from evolution, essentially, by triggering this, this reward network. And of course, once we figure that out, we do it all. Um, that's, that's sometimes, I refer to that as an evolutionary hijack. So it's where we're hijacking a reward system that evolved for other purposes. There's also stories about alcohol where it's an evolutionary mismatch. So this is a slightly different type of mistake where maybe our taste for alcohol was adaptive at one point long time ago in our history, but it's not anymore. And so one example of that is this dirty water hypothesis that, you know, we didn't, before we had good sanitation, drinking water was often unsafe. And, but if you ferment it into beer, it's, it's safe to drink. And so the idea that, well, you know, having a taste for alcohol kept you hydrated without getting sick from bad water. And so, so the first part of the book is basically just debunking all of those stories. So I'm arguing out, our taste for alcohol can't be an evolutionary mistake. And that's because it's ancient. So it's been around for a really long time, like uh, probably at least 20,000 years. Definitely. We have direct evidence 13,000 years ago. It's so, so sometimes evolution doesn't have time to fix something, but it's had plenty of time to fix this. And it's also really costly. So unlike some other evolutionary hijack mistakes, our taste for alcohol is dangerous. It's alcohol is bad for our bodies. It, it increases our cancer risk. It damages the liver. It's re super addictive. It's, it's kind of getting up near cocaine, heroin levels of physical addictiveness. Probably a good 15% of the population has a genetic propensity toward alcoholism and can't use alcohol safely. So I'm arguing given how ancient this taste for alcohol is and how widespread it is across the world and how costly it is, there's got to be adaptive benefits that are paying for the cost. So one of the main points of the book is just to, to argue that the story we've been told about why we like to drink is, is wrong. So that's the, that's the kind of main theme. And then I, I spend a, a chunk of the book, I talk about history, but history just in terms of illustrating how different cultures have used alcohol to attain these various functions. And I, and I talk about several, but the two big ones are individual and group creativity. So individual creativity and then kind of group innovation is the big one big one. And the other one is bonding. So it's helped it's helped people get beyond cooperation dilemmas and, and mistrust and cooperate in situations where you need to trust the other person. So so those are the two big ones. And there's a there's a few other minor ones. So for the eighty five percent of people that uh don't have a propensity to get addicted, um, should they use it? Like, you know, I don't know. But if I had a corporate brainstorming session, should I get everyone a little tipsy and maybe the brainstorming session would go better? Yeah, I, I mean, that's... be practically used in people's lives. 
Yeah, so I give some examples. Um, one is when I gave a talk about this early, this was early stages before I really started doing the research for the book at one of the Google campuses. After the talk was over, they, the first guy, first guy rose, raised his hand and told me about, first of all, the, Bal the Balmer peak. So this is, this is probably apocryphal, but the claim is that Steve Ballmer, the former Microsoft CEO, discovered that there was a certain blood alcohol content, very specific blood alcohol content, where his coding ability was like supernatural, that he had to stay right at that level. He couldn't go over it. And so he supposedly would hook himself up to a alcohol IV to keep himself right at whatever 0.17 or whatever the BAC level was. And then afterwards, they took me on a campus tour, and the first place they took me was their whiskey room. And so they said, when they're, you know, as a team, when they're, they run into a wall, when they've been working on a project and they run into a wall, they don't know what to do next, they need an insight. So sitting in front of their computers, drinking more and more coffee is not helping. They go to the whiskey room and they have this amazing collection of single malt scotches. I was actually very jealous and some you know, beanbag chairs and a foosball table. And they just go in there and pour themselves a scotch and sit and talk. And they said that often after, you know, kind of after probably about 0.08, you know, as they're kind of halfway through that first scotch, ideas start to flow. And, and also, you know, you're getting new ideas when you depress the PFC. You're also, since your inhibitions are lower, you also blurt things out. You, you say things that you maybe would be a little embarrassed about or not sure of, and that's good for, for group creativity. And so corporations use this in a very practical way. I've used it in a very practical way. This actually isn't in the book. When I was writing the proposal, I, I went through about 10 different versions and my agent every time sent it back and it's like, this is not good. <laughs> she's very, she's from Manhattan. She's very, she's not very, um, she doesn't sugarcoat things. So she's like, it's boring. It's not good. And she was right. So, have a drink or two and then reconsider. Yeah. So what I realized was that I had all the science there. I had all the history, all my arguments were in place, but I hadn't taken my own advice. I hadn't actually written any of it while drinking. And so I was on this business trip. This was pre-COVID. And I had about two hours before I was supposed to meet my colleagues for dinner. And so I took my laptop and went down to the hotel bar and ordered a Negroni. And by the end of Negroni number one, I started, words started coming. And it really, the experience was like I was taking dictation. It really didn't feel like I was writing this stuff. It was just coming to me. And what I wrote that evening became pages one through two of the book and the beginning of the proposal. And everyone who reads the book is, loves that section because it sucks you in and kind of, and it's, but it's because it was written at about probably point, point oh eight, maybe point one oh BAC. So yeah, I mean, there are practical ways where you can strategically use alcohol when you need a, a creative insight. Um, are there other substances that are just as good as alcohol, but in a different way to spark creativity or? It was enough to focus on alcohol solely for this book. I talk about can cannabis also can have this function. So, and some people use it for that purpose, right? So there's, uh, so, you know, I, I talk about the history of how alcohol has been associated with artists and poets and writers. And so has cannabis. Um, so cannabis can be used this way too. And it has, cannabis has some advantages over alcohol. So it's uh, not as physiologically damaging as alcohol. And it's also not physically addictive. 
it can it can be psychologically addictive, but it's not physically addictive. And so it's, in some ways, it's a better drug, but but it's not in every way. And the, the two problems with cannabis are that individuals uh, really vary in their response to cannabis. So I have friends who smoke smoke pot and want to you know, get really creative and want to talk about philosophy and want to go dancing or chat about stuff. When I smoke cannabis, I get super paranoid and then I fall asleep. And, you know, now that cannabis is legal in Canada and many states, you know, and you can get any variety you want, everyone's been, oh, you just had the wrong strain. You know, you have to have this type of sativa. And, and I've tried every strain. Every strain does exactly the same thing to me. So this is, this is a problem because you if you want to pick a drug to be the, so that's why you don't have a cannabis room at Google, you have a whiskey room because alcohol has much more consistent effects on people across individuals. You know what's going to happen. Yeah, but well, I guess at lower levels, yeah, at, at higher levels, you know, you have always have those friends that would cry or ones that would get violent or ones that would annoy the heck out of you. So like, you know, I, I've seen that alcohol is also very varied, but that's probably at a higher level. That's at a old, old paternity date. Yeah, that's at a higher level, and it's not variable in the effect. It's actually consistently disinhibiting people. What's varying is to the, the extent to which their disinhibited self is like their sober self. Um, and in, you know, so many people, their disinhibited self is just kind of happier, looser version of their sober self. In other people, when they get disinhibited, some really dark things come out. Um, but that's not because alcohol is having a different effect on them. It's because they have a different relationship to cognitive control, but it's pretty consistently disinhibiting people across individuals. Okay. Um, any, any additional nuance to this, like uh, certain types of alcohol, better certain mixes, uh, you know, beer, because it's, um, you know, it's carbonated. Does it affect people differently than, let's say, scotch or whiskey? <laughs> no, so I mean, ethanol is ethanol. It's gonna, that's the main active ingredient. Uh, but it does matter how, what kind of dose you get. And so one of, the, one of the arguments I make in the book is that alcohol has gotten more dangerous recently, relatively recently, especially considering that it's long, probably 20,000 year history we've had with it. So um, one problem is I call isolation. So it's the fact that we now have the ability to drink alone. So historically, private access to alcohol was pretty rare. You would, if you wanted to drink, it was always in a social environment, and and drinking has always been surrounded by these these norms, you know, ritual regulations about when you pass around the cup or when you can toast and have a drink. Even in really informal situations, modern situations, like if you think about a pub, going to the pub with your friends, you're still typically drinking in rounds. So if you down your beer really fast and um, you want another one, you got you got to wait until we're all finished and we order another round. So there, there are all these ways we can regulate each other when we're drinking socially. But you know, when you have the ability to, I mean, with COVID, you could start ordering. You can have liquor to delivered to your house, right? You can not even leave your house and have, you know, a case of vodka delivered to your house. That's crazy. Like having private access to that much alcohol is just not something we're, we're culturally or genetically really um, adapted for. So one, one danger is this isolation. The other is distillation. So um, alcohols always historically come with this kind of built-in safety feature 
that it could only get to a certain strength because then the, the yeast is at a certain point, the alcohol shuts the yeast down and they can't, they're not producing alcohol anymore. And we've been ruthlessly pushing yeast to get more and more tolerant so we can make stronger and stronger beers and wines. But the best you can get now is kind of 16, maybe 17% ABV with some of these kind of crazy uh, Australian reds. But um, that's still not super strong. But humans figured out distillation at a certain, we've known about distillation for a long time in theory. It, it actually is kind of pretty hard to pull off in practice on a large scale because you need to master all these different technologies like metallurgy or glass blowing and keeping things at a constant temperature. But once we, we figured out how to do it on a large scale, you, you remove that safety feature that alcohol has always had. And you can make, you know, vodkas come at 90 something percent ABV. And that's in the West that only happened a couple hundred years ago. So 1600s, 1700s is when you start getting distilled liquors available to your average person. And distilled liquors are really a whole nother story. You gotta be really careful with them. So, you know, in the whiskey room, you gotta be drinking just one whiskey. <laughs> it, it's the alcohol in a distilled liquor is so much more powerful. It's very easy to blow past the sweet spot of 0.08 and, and get really dangerously drunk very quickly. Whereas for most of our evolutionary history, the stuff we've been drinking has been two to 3% ABV beers. And you can, something like that, you can drink all day and never really get beyond 0.08. So, so ethanol is ethanol. It doesn't matter how it's delivered to you, except that the dosage matters. And you got to really be careful about distilled liquors because they're so much more powerful. Um, from what I remember, there was the rise of coffee houses, I guess, Lloyd's of London and all that, what, I believe in the 1600s. Um, why do you think that happened? Why wasn't alcohol, did alcohol go wrong? Was it overused? You know, I've also heard, I guess, historically hundreds of years ago, um, you know, because of uh, water purification, that beer, let's say, was the safest mead, you know, like a very weak watered yeah. down mead. So maybe, maybe perhaps people were buzzed all the time. Um, you know, again, historically, how was alcohol used well and not used well? Yeah. So I, th I don't know if the coffee shop, um, coffee house phenomenon was a reaction to the gin craze. So like in London, there was this period in the, in the 1700s uh, where there was this gin epidemic. So uh, I think the Dutch were dumping this really cheap gin on, on England and people just, it, it caused this epidemic. And we've seen instances of these kind of epidemics once you get distilled liquor. Um, so another one is Russia in the 1990s. Um, kind of post-Soviet Union, there was just really epic alcoholism and, and abuse of vodka. So it may have been a response to that. It was also partly just, it was a novel substance, you know, it was this new drug and it was great for a lot of stuff. It's if you want to, you know, really focus and talk about a topic, coffee is a great thing to have. And people still use coffee this way, you know, people still meet over coffee. And yet, in, you know, in European cafes and coffee shops, it's, it's, they're not as segregated as they are, for instance, in North America. So in North America, you could either go to a coffee shop or you go to a bar. Um, in Europe, it tends to be a lot more mixed. So you've got your choice of substances. 
and you see people shifting their choice uh, depending on the time of day, depending on what the purpose of the conversation, the interaction they're having is. So, so alcohol can be used. Uh, there are ways, I argue, to use alcohol safely, um, especially if you uh, use it in a way where you're always you're doing it socially. You're doing it as a part of a meal. You're you're not drinking to excess, and so you have social norms that kind of make that make it shameful to overdrink rather than kind of something that's cool to do. Um, and you see that cultures that have these more healthy drinking habits, so typically Southern European cultures like Italy or, or um, Spain, have even though they drink a lot of alcohol, so Italy per capita drinks a lot of alcohol, they have very low incidence of alcoholism. And I don't think it's because they're genetically any different than Germans or Russians. No, I think it's just that they have more healthy norms about drinking. So, so we can point to some cultures that kind of do a better and worse job of integrating alcohol safely into their lives. Yeah, I used to hang out with a bunch of people from Ireland when I worked for Intel like 27 years ago. And hanging out with them, they would drink all night, but they would drink slowly. And everyone yeah. kind of had a good time. It wasn't like let's let's drink to get effed up and yeah. you know to get to fall down. And it seemed like a much healthier way to do it, even though it you know it, it was a lot of alcohol. <laughs> yeah, but it was, yeah, it was better. Yeah, and they were probably drinking you know not super strong ales and beers, so that also helps. But yeah, cultures these northern European drinking cultures where it's a bunch of guys typically, and they're drinking hard alcohol. And they're drinking to get drunk. There's no food. The purpose is to get drunk. That's a really unhealthy drinking culture. And you see that in Eastern Europe, Northern Europe, and then you know the the colonies from those places. So um, I think the U.S. has inherited the U.S. and Australia, and New Zealand have inherited that kind of unhealthy drinking culture. To start. Yeah, that's how I characterized it. It was just a healthier, more sociable way to do it. So yeah, makes the exact yeah. sense. Yeah. So, I mean, what were, what were some of the big learnings for you or did readers come back to you and say, oh, you know what, we really, uh, we really thought this part of the book was great or useful. Uh, so, I mean, I learned a lot doing the research for it. So I didn't, the distillation thing was new to me. I just kind of, I don't know, I, I guess I always assumed we always had distilled liquors. I didn't realize how recent a thing that was, especially in Europe. I was surprised about how long we've been producing alcohol. So, you know, I had been, I don't know, I was consciously taught there, so just assumed it that, you know, first we had agriculture and then at some point we left some stuff sitting around, bread making stuff sitting around and it fermented and we tasted it and thought it was cool and we discovered beer. When I started digging into the archeological literature, it seems like it's actually the other way around. So hunter gatherers were getting together building this massive monumental architecture, having these feasts, doing some kind of religious ritual. We really have very little idea what they were doing and drinking. They were drinking probably, we're almost certain it was beer and maybe even beer laced with hallucinogens. And so I talk in the book about this beer before bread hypothesis, that it was actually the desire to get more and better intoxicants that led hunter-gatherers to settle down and start civilization. So there's a there's a really literal way in which intoxication led to civilization. And so that was very surprising to me. In terms of reader feedback, you know, 
there's the expected, I taught the whole last part of the book is about how dangerous alcohol is. And the, the whole premise of the book is given how dangerous alcohol is, why do we still use it? But, you know, I, I still get the expected angry things from people, which, you know, understandably people who are recovered, recovered or recovering alcoholics or the, the parent, you know, children of or friends of people who have drinking problems who are outraged that I'm celebrating alcohol as something positive. And, you know, it's, it's hard to know how to respond to. Well, they say like the, the biggest jerks are like former smokers. Yeah, if you're a smoker. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Uh, it's understandable, though. I don't, you know, I don't think it's, and they're usually actually quite polite about it, in a sense. They, they just, you know, say, are really concerned about this, you know, this theme in your book. But I do think that, you know, a lot of other people have said to me, you know, thanks for, I think one of the things that maybe the, the most common response I've gotten is, I knew that there was a function to drinking and I never really knew what it was. I had trouble articulating it. And so it's helpful to actually see what the purpose of it is. And I, I think that one of the helpful things in the book is that once you see what the historic functions of alcohol have been and kind of scientifically, how it can change your cognition in various ways, you just have a better ability to make a decision, intelligent decision about what the role of alcohol should be in your life or, or in your organization. And so getting to see, because right now when we talk about alcohol, it's purely through this medicalized lens where it's just all about physiological impact. And that's just, it's just too narrow a way to look at it. It's that is all, all that physiologically negative stuff is true. But you have to then see that on the other side, there's these these positive um, individual and social functions. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So any feedback from readers that, you know, again, wasn't upset with you, but uh, like real positive feedback or surprising feedback that you received? Yeah, I mean, that that's the main one. It's just, I think, people, the most kind of consistent positive feedback is I knew the substance had a role in my life. And that it wasn't just a vice that, you know, I wasn't just doing it because I'm addicted and, you know, pushing this pleasure lever over and over again. I knew I was doing it for a reason. And now I have, you know, I know what that reason is or set of reasons are. And, and you know, then and that then allows people to start using alcohol intelligently and strategically, um, you know, in the way that I did when I realized, like, I, um, you know, version 11, if I just wrote version 11 of the proposal the way I was doing the other 10 versions, it wouldn't, it would not be much better. It wouldn't be qualitatively better than the earlier versions. Um, I realized I needed a, a 0.08 writing session. And so having that awareness of the function of alcohol, people have written to me, you know, or they've realized, oh, this is why, you know, on a date, you get a glass of wine because <laughs> you're nervous and you want to relax mm. and you want to be more um, open and less judging. And it's why, you know, people at the end of work day have a, a drink sometimes to kind of make that transition, caffeine-fueled work life to, you know, a different mode of interacting with people and um, being in the world. So, yeah, I think the most consistent positive feedback has been now I, I can I can articulate what alcohol is doing for me and before I just had a vague vague idea hmm. 
Yeah, no, that makes sense. Well, very good. Ted, uh, any hints at a new book coming or, uh, you know, is this so recent that you need to just take a break for a while or what's next? No, I'm, I'm going to, the next book's an academic book, academic monograph. Um, but the next trade book, the next book that normal people want to read is going to be on hedonism. So, um, mm. purpose of pleasure and, um, the varieties of pleasure and, um, you know, the research for that one's going to be really tough. On yeah, yeah. Well, it's also you know I'm I, I'm going to try to rehabilitate the term hedonism because in English it's got these negative connotations of kind of you know going wild and um, you know indul overindulging and sex and drugs and food and I'm, I'm arguing for hedonism in the, the original Greek sense, um, which was you know pleasure, but uh, for the then the early Greek hedonists were actually really pretty boring. Like you wouldn't want, you wouldn't invite them to a party because they thought that the highest pleasure was contemplating the truth. And, you know, then there were ple other pleasures were debate and kind of, you know, reading and, um, and they were really worried about drinking and eating and stuff like that and sex because they were, they thought those were fleeting and not actually true pleasures. And so hedonism, I want to try to, um, I guess kind of the way I tried to rehabilitate alcohol and drunk, I want to kind of uh, defend hedonism by articulating a more sophisticated form of it than we typically have. Yeah, there was a book that came out uh, the past couple of years by Robert Lustig, and he's normally just a hardcore scientist. He talks a lot about diabetes, metabolic syndrome, but he uh -huh. talked about the difference between pleasure and contentment in terms of, you know, the type of happiness. So. That might oh, be a good uh, resource for you to look at. Oh, yeah. Thanks. I should check that out. Yeah. Great. Well, very good. Ted, so, um, you know, can people get your book anywhere books are sold or, you know, where can they get the book? Yeah, anywhere. So my website's just my name, edwardslayerland.com, and it's got, you know, interviews, reviews, uh, links to my other books, and, and my book's available everywhere. So where it sells books. And the, and the paperback is coming out. Uh, Next week, I think, soon. Paperback is coming out this month. Mm. So it'd be cool if you can get bars to carry the book. You know, when they yeah, have right. Version, yeah, yeah. I've done a couple. I've done more than one um, winery or brewery talk where um, they were selling copies of the book. So yeah, it is That's a natural fit. Yep. Okay. Well, Ted, it was great to talk to you, and thanks for coming on the podcast. And a uh, very curious book. I'll have to check it out. And thanks. Okay, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.